Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who spent most of his adult life caring about strangers, caring about people who have nothing, who have been expelled from their countries, who have very little in the way of possessions or prospects. We have much to learn from Kent Annan and his experience as the director of humanitarian and disaster leadership. It is my honor to present Kent Annan. You're very welcome to the show. We are particularly interested in hearing about your background. Now, you are the director of humanitarian and disaster leadership. And I wanted to ask you how you came to that role. What's the backstory, Kent? Yeah, thanks, Moyes. It's great to be with you. The story has really started back when I first graduated from college, and my my first job was to work with refugees. So I actually hearing a little bit about your story, but I lived in England, uh, north of London, for a year and a half, worked with refugees there. I lived in France, worked with refugees, came back and went to graduate school, spent time in India during graduate school, and right after graduate school, moved to Albania. There was the war was happening in Kosovo at the time, and Worked with refugees. So I've had this kind of work, and my wife and I can talk about this more later. But my wife and I lived in Haiti. I started a nonprofit working in Haiti, lived there for two and a half years, and I went back and forth. So all of these experiences led to my being invited to come up to Wheaton College to help direct this master's degree program in humanitarian and disaster leadership. And I hadn't anticipated this, but it just felt like a wonderful chance to take what I've been working on and learning for 25 years, uh, hopefully I learned something, you know, and uh, and then to be able to share that and, and help the next generation and, and people at different points in their career to kind of enter thoughtfully into how they're going to serve other people. Why refugees? Why did you become so interested in that particular group of people? Yeah, I think it was like this sort of combination of getting started. You know, I was 20 years old when I moved to England. I think I had family friends who had done some work with refugees. I think so it was partly refugees themselves. It was also this felt like, you know, sort of a bit of an adventure. So I think that was one of the motivations. I think it was also just, like, you know, sort of like, like we should feel that people who lost everything, you know, like, okay, we're going to step in to help somewhere in the world to, to help people who had kind of lost everything, run away from everything. So it was this mix of things and, you know, seeing headlines and, and everything. And then uh, for me, what happened is it became this abstraction and adventure and also wanting to help and do all this. And then suddenly the, these people, you know, this category of people, became friends. And so, uh, you know, for me, that changed everything. The friends I made when I was working in different spots in Europe, the, in France, I was actually living in a hostel where many refugees from Sierra Leone and from Yugoslavia was breaking up as a country in a war then, and so from Sarajevo. And, and so I thought this was going to be two years, and I'd go back to what I anticipated doing you know, doing business and politics and things I thought I was going to do. And here we are, 23. 28 years later and I think a lot of it had to do with the friendships so I think it was the idea got me going but it was the friendships uh, and relationships and uh, that kept me in You'll know this famous experiment Kent where I think psychologists designed this many years ago where you are asked to look into the face of a stranger for mm-hmm. a few minutes 
And eventually, eventually your humanity just pours out because you see mm. this, you actually see the human being who sat in front of you, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of anything yeah. else. I'm sure those kind of stories resonate with you because you've been doing this for so many years. You've been looking into the face of strangers. What do you see there? Yeah, I think there was exactly what you described. I think seeing both the commonalities and the differences get a lot deeper, you know. So, so I, I, my last book was called You Welcomed Me. It was about refugees and I have a chapter titled That Could Be Me. And so I think that's one of the things that struck me was kind of growing in empathy and thinking, well, like this, like just a slight twist of history, right? That, that, that could be me. So I think looking into their eyes and to know people was, these could be my circumstances. These could be me whose family was killed, whose house was burned down, who, who had to walk hundreds of miles, you know, to, to get away. So I think that similarity and just like slight twist, I think is something that's really struck me over time. I think the differences and letting the appreciate cultural differences and experiential differences and how incredibly different our experiences can be. And then, of course, the commonality that we could be there and just feel like we're bonding or you know playing ping pong or drinking a coconut together in Haiti or you know, or getting beat again and again in chess, you know, by the guy from Sarajevo and. And so, you know, all these things just felt like, like what you said in that experiment, it's just this kind of deeper humanity. And I felt like it's shaped, like these experiences that have shaped who I am as a person and made, and who, for whatever extent I've grown um, and matured and become more loving and welcoming. You know, it's very much been these relationships that have helped me to, to grow in my life. So I have deep gratitude to be able to have done this work. So it sounds like not only were you giving, but actually you sound like you received more than you actually gave from, from those descriptions. You said you grew as a person, you grew and your experiences grew, your perspectives widened. Say something more about that. What else did you get? Why, why did you find, why have you found this so rewarding? Yeah, that's a really good big question. I think Getting that perspective is a good thing of saying, you know, just to feel like a, to have a perspective on how different people live and approach questions and, and meaning is felt so important. I think to see people's faith and their, like their, their religious faith and the way they trust in God from these different experiences and the way they answer and go through questions and trials differently has been incredibly meaningful to me. I think. It's deep in my empathy, you know, so not that I'm not selfish still, but I think the extent I've become more generous is sort of like seeing how other people live and, and empathizing and, and thinking our, we could be, our, our situations could be different. And so I think the opportunity to grow in empathy has been really meaningful. And then it's just the, the warmth of friendship, you know, of, of, fun people and we were laughing with and you know there's something always to me feels kind of holy like to step in maybe you feel this as a doctor as well and some you know whatever term you'd use but to to step into someone's life like i've gotten to do whether it's like helping to push a wheelbarrow in albania of all their worldly possessions you know to the train and it felt less like helping often that it felt like, uh, you know, I don't deserve to be here, but if I can lend a hand, you know, in this moment, it, it feels like a real honor, you know, to be in this moment. So that's often how it felt to me 
to enter these moments. And, and I think those are, I don't have a good summary of it, but I think those are kind of the, the different ways that, that that's all shaped me for the better. Yeah. That's a wonderful video, I think, somewhere on YouTube. I remember liking it some years ago, and it shows uh, a homeless man sitting on the steps of some building eating a pizza. And there's a chap in a suit sitting nearby who keeps looking over at him. And the homeless man eventually beckons him over and says, would you like a Are you hungry? Would you like a piece? The homeless man is offering this suited bloke a piece of pizza. Right. And of course, it's all a setup because they're filming this. And eventually wow. it it's apparent that the homeless man has got a candid camera pointed at right. him. And the crew then say, look, sorry, but this was a, this was a setup. Your generosity is so extraordinary that we're going to offer you whatever they offered him. And the man burst into tears. It's a beautiful right. video. Oh, that's nice. And just listening to your story, I'm reminded of that and the way that those experiences, seeing people who are in distress, in need, in pain or hungry, and seeing that they are still, even in that situation, very human. They are not like animals. They're not right. ravenously consuming what little they have, but they can still see around them and they can still see the humanity in all who pass them by. So mm. you're right. In a sense, the care of people in need is a gift. Mm. It gives us something. And somebody said gifts come mm. in all shapes and sizes. You must yeah. have some wonderful stories like that, like the business of, you know, taking somebody to the train with a wheelbarrow full of their worldly goods. Do you have other stories like that? Yeah, it feels like lots. Yeah, I think the um, this group I mentioned, I lived it within France, like it, that was important to me to see there early on, and we were living in the same house, these guys who had escaped, uh, you know, war and violence in Sierra Leone and from Sarajevo and Yugoslavia and you know, I remember, you know, all that they'd lost. And so, you know, I was so young, so I was still getting my head around that. And, and so kind of hearing their stories. And then, and then it, the snow fell in France there. It was, you know, it's been December, January. And uh, it was the first snowfall they'd ever seen. You know, so you know, I remember sliding, you know, out sliding on the street and picking it up and making snowballs and showing how to make snowballs and, and doing that, you know, so it was kind of, um, Beautiful moments, and then there are moments. You know, my wife and I lived in Haiti, you know, which is one of the, the, the you know beautiful place I love so much. But then so many people live with so little, and so going to parties are the best parties I've ever been to. But also sitting on a porch with a family who lost a seven or eight, you know eight year old son, very just a little younger than my son is now, you know, because he'd kind of fallen in a fire, and there's no way he would have died if he was in the U.S. You know, he would have. He would have been taken care of here, but with infections and lack of care. And so to be with people on joy and then to be with people, you know, who, who had lost loved ones just because they were poor, you know. And so I think that's been the, the kind of that range of experience, uh, kind of in doing this kind of work and great, grateful to step into them and, and definitely motivates me to keep trying to do the work I'm doing and work with others, you know, so we can, can care for them all. Like you said, having that personal connection and then also doing that the hard work to think, how can we help well? Mm. In the film, Back to the Future, I think uh, Michael Fox is being advised not to go back to 2020. 
by somebody. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. So apparently that's true. And uh, somebody was saying that there was a, a video clip about that. And in <laughs> retrospect, that was extraordinarily prophetic. The world has changed. The world today is a very broken place, broken by division, broken by dint mm-hmm. of this extraordinarily infectious and deadly virus that has taken grip, not just in the US, but right across the world. In fact, mm-hmm. as you speak to me, I'm speaking to you from my cupboard because our offices have been closed because we are in lockdown, yeah. stage four lockdown, and we can't go to work. But that's going to be an interesting place to come out of because out of that will come unemployment and poverty and chronic illness and all the things mm-hmm. that are associated with that. You are the director of this Humanitarian Disaster Institute, and that's very much what we are currently facing. How do you see this unfolding? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have a course I'm teaching tomorrow with our, our master's degree students, and you know, one study we'll be looking at tomorrow in class anticipates you know there could be a at least a ten percent rise in extreme poverty. So those people living on less than U.S. a dollar ninety a day, and so. I, that's for the extreme poor, and then those who are already there, it's probably getting worse. I, I don't know for you, but you know that our unemployment has skyrocketed in the in the U.S. And it feels like we're just at the front end of even realizing what all the implications of this are. You know, as you keep reading headlines of you know some hiring, which is great, but but continued uh, layoffs. Then in the U.S. we have this other layer of sort of racial division and tension around, around police violence and different things. No, so it really does feel fraught in this moment with, with so much suffering and, and different suffering layers upon suffering. So all the things you mentioned, there's a public health crisis, but then it's going to ripple out, it's rippling out in politics, it's rippling out in unemployment, it's rippling out to the poorest of the poor. You know, a lot of what we work, we work with long-term development and refugee issues, things and human trafficking. We also work a lot with disasters and what we talk about with disasters and this pandemic can be seen as a, a type of disaster is that, uh, you know, in one way, superficially, it can look like um, disasters don't discriminate. It's sort of everybody in the world, wealthy, poor, gets hit with this pandemic. And you, you know, I'm in my office for the second time in five months. You know, you're, you're um, kind of not able to go in the office there. And so it looks like, oh, this is affecting everyone. But then the, the truth is it doesn't hit everybody the same. You know, the disasters do discriminate. And they reveal vulnerabilities that are there. The people who are more poor are more vulnerable. Or people who are more socially isolated become even more socially isolated. And so uh, much of our work as well as sort of thinking in, in disasters and including the work we've been doing on COVID-19 is how can we pay attention to those who are or most vulnerable in the midst of a time when all of us are feeling vulnerable. Mm. And what kind of strategies are you promoting? What are you saying we should be doing? Yeah, so a lot of our work is with churches. And so an example, I think this can apply in other sectors as well. But as we were guiding churches through early on, we even started the work before it was officially declared a global pandemic, but we are we were walking with, so, okay, as you shut down and don't gather anymore, who are the 5 or 10% of people in your church and then potentially in your community who could fall through the cracks? And sort of calling attention, so it feels like part of our coaching has been thinking about how do we get the best medical advice, how do you do good crisis communication, how do you manage well, but then very much for us what's important is 
know, and that's not an exact number, but you know, that five or ten percent of people who could fall through the cracks, those are the ones who are most vulnerable. And so if do they not have technology and what extra efforts can we make to connect with them by phone or to do a visit with social distancing? Are there people who you know, for, for us in the U.S., like don't have English, and so we should be reaching out to immigrant populations to make sure they're also having access to the same services. So it's very much being deliberate for us to think of the, these big picture crisis, disaster management issues, but then always with all of them, how do we especially pay attention in the communication, in management, in decision making to those who are most vulnerable? And if we do that, we really can go far. And when we do that. And then also are good at uh, partnering, you know, what agencies are getting people in touch with, uh, with uh, like a food pantry or a food bank uh, to be able to get food to, to those who might fall through the cracks. So I think for us, that's been a, an important part of, of doing what you said uh, and making sure that we're, we're calling attention in really strategic ways to how everybody makes it through, but especially those who will have the hardest time making it through this crisis we're all going through. We forget that the divisions that were are being highlighted, they're being magnified mm-hmm. in a situation like this. And you're right, it's a community approach. But what do you say to individuals who might be involved? Now, obviously, in healthcare, you're not necessarily part of the big community, but you are definitely going to have access to or exposed to people who are going to have very, very little and the backstory is something you may not be aware of. What do you say to people who are meeting strangers for the first time who may be in that situation? What is the best way to respond there? Yes, yeah, so one of the materials that we've released over the last five months, it's a research team I was on, but really led by my colleague, Dr. Jamie Aiden here at Wheaton. And it's called Spiritual First Aid. What this method does, we can call it the BLESS method. And so it's in conversations. Going in post-disaster, but it works in COVID as well, is that you can go in conversation and think, oh, here are five categories where I can check in on people, five basic needs. So with BLESS, it's uh, belonging. You know, how are their needs, uh, how are your needs being addressed for belonging right now? Connection to community, loneliness, isolation, these different factors. Uh, the second is livelihood. So that goes to, you know, sort of job, potentially job loss. Job stresses, other things that go through. How are people doing with their livelihood needs? Next is emotional. How are they doing on emotional needs and strains that are coming in a time with like this? The other would be spiritual. And so thinking about what are spiritual needs right now? Because we know that that can, especially for spiritual people, it's a key to getting it through crisis. And the last is safety. And that's if they're potentially at harm from someone else or to themselves. Like, a suicide risk or domestic violence, something like that. So to go through those belonging, livelihood, emotional needs, uh, spiritual needs, and safety needs are a way to have this rubric to to understand, oh, how can I step into someone's life, like you said, and say, uh, kind of do a quick assessment of, oh, it's a, you know, primarily in livelihood, like a financial need that they're going in, or no, this is, oh, they're really alone, but if we connect them to some kind of community that could be good or always oh, like a suicide risk and we can ask about and do we need to connect them with local health officials who can step into that. So we found that that, and it's about 10, 11 years of research that's gone into that, getting into those five categories is a way that can be really helpful to, to step in and feel like, okay, I don't need to know anything, but kind of a, a triage of assessing people's needs. Mm. 
that's fantastic. I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking about it as a family doctor. I'm thinking, I've just written all these mm-hmm. notes down. I, I'm going to go back on Friday yeah. when I practice and, and do what you're suggesting because you're right. Context is everything. Somebody coming in with seemingly a minor illness with this background where they've lost belonging, they've lost their livelihood, they're emotionally vulnerable, they're spiritually disconnected and they don't feel safe in some way. Yeah. For physical reasons, social reasons. It's not just a case of printing out a prescription for an antibiotic and not you know, patting on them on the head and sending them away, yeah. uh, which is how the healthcare system potentially could respond mm-hmm. in a situation yeah. like this. Right, exactly. And it can be holistic and then know that you're able to address the physical needs, but then none of us can address all these needs. But if we listening can be helpful and, and maybe people can help to discover their own ways out and they can be stuck, but it's also then we can just kind of with referrals and knowing that we're part of a community, then it can really be a, a way to, to get people, you know, plugged in in ways that, that we can eat. But by asking going to that grid, we can do assessments and, and really more quickly get them uh, what's most urgent uh, in their lives. From what you're saying, for the, the role of family medicine in particular, in terms of becoming part of the community, even if they haven't been a major link with the community, becoming part of the community and becoming part of the solution would help because otherwise we become part of the problem because we can propagate bad practices and uh, things that are not particularly helpful and add to the distress the person is already in. Yeah, and then for, for like you and listeners who are in the medical field, like it's so urgent now and I think it seems like more than ever before uh, with the way bad information swirls in a time like this, the misinformation. So I think your role like, can be like to, to do this more holistic assessment, but I think your role as trusted sources of information is just uh, so crucial right now. So I think also and with your individual patients and then also thinking in the community to be able to be trusted sources when the internet is swirling with things, I think that, that make people less trusting, bad advice, and then I think sometimes frozen with those or anything I can do. And so I'm so grateful for the role that you and others are playing during this pandemic. Kent, where can people find you? Are there particular places where they can look you up and look up the work that you're doing? Uh, yes, I'm on uh, Twitter. It's at Kent Annan is my Twitter handle. People can find me on the Wheaton College uh, here in the U.S. So Wheaton can Google Kent Annan at wheaton.edu, and I think that's a way to connect. And then our, if you look up the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, uh, that's our institute here at the college that's very much responding to these factors. And then I think one, especially for maybe the place to, to start, so I'd love to connect with anyone, get in touch over Twitter, uh, email through the website. And then uh, for the people, what we're talking about, we have a website we've created called Spiritual First Aid Hub. Dot com, so spiritual first aid hub hub.com. And we have tip sheets. We have a manual on this blessed method that I mentioned. And uh, we, we can be contacted uh, by email through there. But all kinds of free information that we can do. And we have some courses on burnout. My colleague's a psychologist. And so he has some free online courses. So we really want to serve, you know, with our, in our corner, like you're able to serve here. We have our corner. We're just trying to serve in the best ways we can. To this, and I have uh, four books out as well. So, if you want to look up on your favorite uh, online book 
in case it's hard to go to bookstores these days, but your online books, <laughs> booksellers, if you want to learn more, then, uh, then uh, happy to connect people uh, with people through books as well. We'll make sure that all of this is in the show notes, but people might have liked to hear you talk about them anyway. Kent, yeah. it's been a complete joy speaking with you. We wish you all the very best and hope to speak to you again very soon. Yeah, thank you, Moya. Thank you for what you're doing. And I, I just will, if I, it's okay to add one more thing, I just for all your listeners. And I just continue, I get to talk with all people all over the country and world who are working hard in a response to the pandemic and, and trying to serve like you are there. And I'm just so grateful. I just feel like, you know, there are times we're seeing truly ugly things of division right now in our country. We're seeing stress and loss. I think we're seeing beautiful parts of humanity right now. So I just want to thank everybody who's who's there and listening and be encouraged to, to keep choosing what's beautiful and generous and good as you serve others. Because, because I think this is a moment when we can make a real difference in people's lives too. Strange, isn't it, that COVID has brought us together more than anything else. It may have divided mm-hmm. us in some ways, but it has brought us together in many, many ways. The world has become a much smaller place. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Let's build on that empathy and love for each other. Thank you. Thanks, Wyatt. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.